on your PC, iPod or smartphone, this is the girlsplayfooty.com podcast. Coming up on the 100th episode of Girls Play Footy, we catch up with the founder of the South Australian Women's Football League, Gina Dutschke, the founder of the West Australian Women's Football League, Joanne Huggins, and the founder of the Sydney Women's Australian Football League, Yvette Andrews. Plus, our Sandford Women's Report with Alison Schiller. That's all coming up on the girlsplayfooty.com podcast. I'm Peter Holden and welcome to the ninth episode of the girlsplayfooty.com podcast for 2018, our 100th episode overall. And a quick reminder, you can actually download this podcast via Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, or you can hear it as a radio program Wednesday evening, 6pm Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time on RSN Carnival. That's digital radio in Melbourne and via the RSN Racing and Sport app. So here we are, episode 100. We originally began as a podcast back on the 19th of February 2015, and we're here some three years later on commercial radio in Melbourne. Now, there's lots of facts and thanks to get through, but we'll do all of that at the end of the show because, as always, we like to turn the focus onto those involved in women's footy at all levels. For this 100th episode, we felt it was important to highlight quite possibly the most important individuals in women's footy, those that began the original women's state leagues. Now, in this episode, you'll hear from three of those individuals, but we're hoping over the coming weeks to interview the likes of Gemma Griffiths, who helped start the VWFL, uh, Vanessa Mayer, who helped start the TWL, uh, and those involved in getting women's footy off the ground in the ACT, Queensland, and the Northern Territory. It's important that we highlight these individuals because without them taking those important first steps in establishing women's football in their respective states, quite frankly, the AFLW would not exist today. Plus, in my humble opinion, we as the community that love women's footy should be pushing for these individuals to be inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame. So let's begin with our first guest. Back in 1990, she got the ball rolling for women's footy in South Australia. She founded the South Australian Women's Football League and was its first president. Her name is Gina Dutschke and she joins us on the line now. Gina, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Great to have you on the line and can you believe it's almost 30 years ago that you started what was now known as the SAWFL? Correct. It was 1990 for me, so it's um, certainly a trip down memory lane. Well, let's go back to 1990. Around that time, um, the Victorian Women's Football League was in its uh, ninth year. Uh, WA had just been going for a couple of years at that stage. Nothing had happened yet in South Australia. So what was the initial spark for you to get the ball rolling for women's footy in SA? You have to remember these are days pre-internet um, and being able to just Google things like that. So we actually didn't know that there were teams in the other states to begin with. Um, and, yeah, I, I just finished six years of tertiary study um, in piano, organ and education in teaching. And it was my first year out and didn't have a full-time job. Um, and I had a summer sport in tennis, but I wanted to play a winter sport. Um and I, I mean, I know there's plenty of options, but um, I wanted to play football and I didn't know if there were any South Australian teams. So, yeah, um, how do you find that information out when there's no internet? Um, we had a, we we'll still have a famous celebrity here called KG Cunningham, Ken Cunningham, used to run a football show for SANFL um, and also had a talkback radio sports segment. So I rang that and asked him. Uh, and he said, no, there's no women's football, play soccer or go jogging. 
So um, <laughs> it was like a red rag to a ball. So, you know, um, I was just raring to go at something. So I put my energy into starting up football. Now, a year before the competition actually started, the VWFL actually played a group of Adelaide women in an exhibition match. Um, so how did that come about? And I guess where, where could they source women from, considering at that stage a league didn't exist? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I did the – I rang KG. Various people heard me on the radio that day. Um, I did the series of uh, – newspaper interviews and photo shoots of me either with a football or a piano or both um, and I get, put my phone number on everything and I collected 200 names of girls that wanted to be involved but one of the people that rang me was Jenny Williams she's sister of Mark and Stephen daughter of Foss Williams famous footballing family and at that time she was working as a representative I think for um, the Minister for Sport um, and she gave me a few tips suggestions and we came up with holding four uh, successive weekends of women's football and like I had all these names of people, I had all their addresses and phone numbers I've still got them would you believe, locked away in a filing cabinet Um, and we started with a level O coaching course one weekend, the next weekend we did a clinic uh, for skills uh, and SNFL development officer Robbie Thompson, who was also an AFL player um, for the Crows, he ran both of those. Then we had a lightning carnival um, for all of those women that had, you know, phoned in or girls. Uh, and the next weekend, because it was a promotional event, Jenny Williams put together a team of famous South Australian um, sports women. I guess you'd say uh, Jenny herself had been involved in state lacrosse and cricket and soccer and all sorts of things but she put together a team um, with various other women who are either famous in their field for basketball or whatever or were both famous and had brothers playing in AFL so um, they were big they were well-known names uh, in South Australia and people came they came to that match um, I contacted Victoria. We didn't know what was in Victoria. We didn't really get on to the main um, admin over there for women, women's football, and they sent over a team, but it, their team wasn't really representative of their state, and our SA All-Stars really thrashed them. Um, so it was great for us because we looked really good. <laughs> and it always helps uh, the Adelaide locals when you beat the Vicks. That <laughs> gets the morale booster. Um, That's right. <laughs> l- l- like you mentioned there, you, you, see, you still got the numbers of the women that you called up the first play in that, uh, uh, the SAWFL. I mean, going back, I mean, I think this is the days of the seven-digit phone numbers, not the eight-digit phone numbers. This is how long ago we're talking. So... Based upon that information that you've got, you've got these numbers after this exhibition match. What's the next step? How did you contact them, get the word out that you wanted to start this women's league? And what was the initial response like from those that were thinking about playing? Um, The overwhelming response was positive for both women and men. And the information really, like I said, got out by newspaper and radio. Um, And with all those names, then I put them into, because I had the addresses, into groups according to where they were living locally into their suburbs and they then formed like teams and contacted local football teams and became 
uh, that's how they evolved. Like the, the, the girls themselves and got together in their local areas. Some of them were existing teams. They had a couple of university teams, um, people that were doing scratch matches anyway, uh, and then had a team to bring into a competition. So we started with six teams. Um, yeah. Well, in forming the SAWFL, can you remember who the original clubs were? And, and more importantly, what was it like dealing with the men's clubs at that time, particularly to get ground access, to get jumpers, etc.? Um, we had a lot of trouble getting grounds to play it. So we, had, we played Sunday afternoons, 12 and 2 p.m. at a central um, venue at Adelaide High School. Our six teams were Hectorville... Thunderbirds, Brighton, CD Cougars, Power Hills and Edwardstown. And most of them are different suburbs of um, Adelaide. Um, at that time, and then there's two, two university teams as well. So, yeah. At that time, trying to set up the SAWFL, um, did you have any assistance at all from the sandfall of the state government or were essentially left to fend for yourself and try to find your own sponsors and just work from there? Yeah, sponsorship was certainly an issue. Um I did meet with um, SNFL a couple of times and that's how we got Robbie Thompson helping us initially in that promotional year. And as far as the government goes, well, we had Judy Williams who was helping the Minister for Sport uh, and she helped out in that first pre-year 1990 as well. Some of the women that phoned in weren't players that wanted to be involved. They actually wanted to help with admin. So they had gifts in administration, treasury or secretarial or whatever. So, you know, we formed a basic committee and then each team had to send someone in and, you know, all of a sudden I had helpers. So it was great. Now, as you mentioned, you're essentially fresh out of university and here you are starting up a football competition. How daunting was that to, to even take on the role as the first ever SAWFL president and then essentially laying the groundwork for everything that was to follow? Yeah, when you're young, you're pretty naive. And I was just ready to take on the world no matter what it was. So I don't think I had a clue about what I was really doing. Um, and I didn't I didn't have brothers who played football. I didn't grow up, you know, going to, to kids' football matches. Um, I played tennis. Um, my brother didn't play football. Uh, I was a musician. I wasn't even allowed to play netball in case I hurt my fingers. And I only ever myself played in the Lightning Carnival in that um, promotional year. And I realised after six years of study, my fingers are my life and my work. I can't risk it. So I ended up just in admin as the president. So I had plenty of time because I wasn't out there training. Well, it's unusual, isn't it? Because when we hear a lot of um, people that are the first presidents of competitions, male or female, it's essentially because they want to play. That's the reason why they start up this competition, because they want to take part in this sporting competition and have everyone else, um, um, you know, join them. So um, how difficult is that to be able to start that up and say, no, I'm not joining you out there. I'm sitting back and watching. Yeah, I think it was pretty sad because that was the driving force. That was my whole 1990 getting ready to, for this competition that I could then play in and be part of a team sport. Um, but I was still part of a team because I was part of the... You know, I was still out there on the Sundays watching. Like I knew all the, the people. I mean, it was really great atmosphere. And, yeah, I wasn't playing, but, um, ah, well, that's how it goes. In the years that you did have with the SAWFL and you were standing there on the sidelines in a Sunday afternoon, who were some of the best players, particularly in those early years, that you saw run around on the park? Yeah, we had some, some great girls, lovely people, just an, an awesome um, 
sportswomen as well. The inaugural Dutch key medalist was Laura Giaretto. She was a state basketballer. She, I mean, she was amazing. Um, then we've got a, a number of women that just played for 20 years and they're, they're the ones who've got awards named after them as well. Deb Pittman, Tiff Lee, Trudy Glasbrook, Kath Mulverhill. And then there was a whole lot who had brothers who were great footballers, like Ros Kitschke, her brother Damien played for St Kilda. Debbie Jarman, she's sister of Darren and Andrew Jarman, who are AFL footballers. We had Kylie and Daisy Wanganeen, and I said they were related to um, Gavin Wanganeen. So there, you know, there were some famous names out there. And what does it mean to you personally, I mean, particularly after all these years, to still have the Women's Division One Best and Fairest Award named after you, even so after, obviously, we've transitioned now from the SAWFL to being under the Adelaide Football League umbrella? Oh, look, I'm really surprised, and I'm certainly very humbled. Um, well, my, my only was president for three years, and it was a really intense, time-consuming um time of my life to do all that but it was really brief when you think that it's nearly 30 years ago and other people have then taken the reins and taken it so much further and brought their dreams and ambitions to it so yeah, I'm certainly humbled that it's still named after me and very honoured uh, honoured to be invited back to participate in things like presenting the award and seeing the sportswomen of today and celebrating their achievements so topping the coin at the grand final it's been lovely to still be um, invited to be part of it. Were you um, blown away or jealous that uh, about a year and a half ago you handed over the Dutchkey medal to a young 16-year-old in Chloe Shear who hopefully um, when she returns from her ACL will have a bright future with the Crows or whoever she plays with in the AFLW. Uh, when you handed it to her in 2016, I think that year she'd won the under-18s best and fairest, the under-18s goal kicking, third in the seniors goal kicking and of course won the award named after you. Yeah, yeah, it was quite phenomenal. Um... But you know that every every girl that wins that award, um, they're all amazing, and the and the ones that come second and third and fourth, I mean they they're all, their skill levels is just amazing. You know that, that that's what I'm most amazed about. When we took our first team across to Victoria in 1991 and played a true Victorian side that had been you know women have been playing for years, they were tall, they were strong, they could you know all just run on playing it was it was incredible we couldn't do any of that we I mean we were we were creamed that day um that's where we're at now we're, we can actually compete against the best um because we're part of that now we're part of the best at, at that time we weren't but it is amazing to see how far we've come and yeah I'm very grateful to have been a part of it and finally on that point obviously now we have the national competition we're in season two of the AFLW what did it mean for you as a South Australian last year to not only have the Adelaide Crows participate in this competition, but at the end of the day to come away with the silverware. Yeah, wasn't that amazing? Uh, look, I, there was so much hype around it too and people were so interested. It, it's phenomenal. You know, we struggled to get any interest to start with um, and now here it is, it's just taken off. Um, so, yeah, congratulations to everyone that's got it that far. Well, Gina, thank you very much for joining us here at Girls Play Footy. Again, congratulations on everything that you've done with the South Australian Women's Football League, those particularly early years, the formative years to get it up and running to be able to have uh, women's football as we have it today. Thank you. Thanks for your promotion and your support. So now let's head west and chat with the founder of the West Australian Women's Football League, 
Joanne Huggins. Joanne, this competition began back in 1987. How does it feel when I tell you you started this wonderful thing that's still going today 31 years ago? Oh, it makes me feel pretty old. <laughs> it's a long time ago, 1987. You're a 22-year-old. Now, before we get into the nooks and crannies of the WAWFL, I believe around that time you were just boundary umpiring then in footy. Uh, well, no, a, a fair while before that, I, uh, as a younger girl, I um, boundary umpired for my brother's footy team. And, uh, yeah, that was uh, my only involvement other than a bit of uh, helping out Dad on the sidelines with coaching. So around 86, 87, you're a 22-year-old. Uh, what drove you to say, I want to start up a women's football competition, I want to get out there and play? Um, I was a pretty fit uh, kind of 22-year-old and I did a lot of running and I always loved footy, um, so I watched it and I guess I, I had a little bit of time on my hands to sort of sit and think about how I might be able to make it happen and, and so I did think about it and I thought, well, I'm just going to contact the WAFL, uh, the Men's League in Perth and uh, see if someone there might... Uh, give me some assistance to get it going. What was the initial reaction you got back then? I mean, even to this modern day where we have AFLW, there's still, unfortunately, the dinosaurs out there that uh, that don't want to give women's footy the light of day. We're going back 30 years where I'm imagining conditions were a lot tougher and I don't think there would have been many allies on your side at that stage. Uh, no, I mean, I got a letter back from the WASL saying that they had um, passed on my letter to a newly developed football development trust, um, which I guess was just good timing because I think prior to that, if there hadn't have been a football development trust, there probably wouldn't have been any interest at all from the WAFL. That was the feeling that I got from the response, but fortunately the football development trust was was set up to develop football in WA and I guess uh, this was one thing that they might have been able to do and and did do to... uh, to help develop football. At that stage when you were reaching out to the Football Development Trust, how many other women did you know that wanted to play Aussie Rules before you'd begin to make the call out? I didn't really know any, (laughs) to be honest, not not personally, but I had over the years, you know, met different girls and spoke about playing footy and how I'd love to do it. Uh, I played a, a little scratch match with some, some kids from school at one point when we were teenagers and uh, we kicked the football around at high school and um, did that in, in phys ed and stuff. And uh, so I knew that there were girls that could kick footy and uh, like to kick a footy and catch footy, mark a footy. Um, so I figured that there probably were other girls like me and I would find out. And what were those early communications like with the Football Development Trust? Uh, what did they do to try and help get what would now be known as the WAWFL off the ground? Well, I met with Brian Cook, who's now the the uh, general manager of the Geelong AFL Football Club. Um, he was the general manager at the time of the Football Development Trust, and he was great because he was and still is a very progressive guy um, so he was very open to the idea of starting a competition uh, he, he, he was also um, very flexible in the way we, we went about it um, he asked me how I wanted to do it and 
I suggested that we need to get some advertising out to see if there was any interest from the, the female public. And uh, so that was the first thing we did was was put a little ad in the West Australian newspaper asking people to contact me if they were interested in a, in a game of footy. And what was the response like after that first advertisement? I think I got over 70 phone calls um, from that one little ad. It was probably only a couple of inches long um, by a column wide in the in the paper and um, put my, my parents' home phone number. That's where I was living at the time. Um, and I was pretty much glued to the phone from the minute it hit the paper for, for quite a while. <laughs> well, it's great to see that you got those 70 numbers. Now, if I'm correct... Before the actual beginning of the WAWFL, I believe you were playing a couple of scratch matches beforehand. Um, so we, yeah, what we did with with those seventy girls, um, plus you know the extras that came along after that, was we we formed two teams and um, we did a bit of a trial run and and had uh, yes two scratch matches um, a little bit spaced apart where we we fitted some training in and a bit of coaching. With again help from the Football Development Trust to uh, to get some male coaches to show the girls some skills, the ones who who didn't have that much experience, um, and then the rest of us just to to get us a bit more football fit before we actually hit the ground and and played a game. Um, so that was really useful. Obviously, it wasn't as much as as you need for a full season, but it was enough to to get us out on the field and have a bit of a a match which was good from that point on what was it like trying to reach out to at that stage the men's amateur clubs to find homes for all these girls to essentially create the teams and and not only just obviously have a, a club to play under but to get your jumpers your socks shorts your grounds to play on etc what was that process like um that was difficult at times there were uh, a lot of letters uh, to clubs and, and they just went unanswered um, we didn't always get a response some clubs responded and said they weren't interested in having a women's team uh, but we did manage to find four clubs scattered throughout the metro area and we wanted to, to spread around as, as far as we could to, to make it convenient for women to play wherever they lived um, so we managed to find four clubs that did um were willing to take us on and and that was our first season we had four amateur clubs uh, supporting us one of those teams of course uh, was the one you ran out for in Inaloo can you tell me what the atmosphere was like uh, being the first women's team to run out representing Inaloo um I mean the, the crowd was very small there was only family and friends on the sidelines not too many of those so it was really just about playing footy. It wasn't anything else. It wasn't about what people thought of us. All we wanted to do was play footy, and, and that was pretty much uh, unanimous feeling throughout the, the competition at the time. The girls just wanted to play footy, and there was no other motivation. And as you said, a four-team uh, competition, how did you structure it? I mean, the VWFL, when that originally began in '81. Likewise, had four teams. Uh, they went with a fortnightly competition, and I think it was something like uh, uh, seven or eight rounds and then finals. Uh, what was the structure like in year number one for the WAWFL? 
I think we played, well, so we played on the same day and um, one after the other. And the, the point of that was so that we could all support each other. Um, a lot of the girls that played for different teams were still friends and knew each other from other sports. Um, so they they simply played for different teams because of the areas that they lived in. We tried to, to keep girls to the areas that they, they lived in so that we could make sure that the, the spread of the players was even and that people wouldn't um, go to the strongest club. Uh, we, I think, played each other around about four times throughout the season um, before we had a, a final. The finals were... Yeah, just, just the standard set two semis, first and second semi, and then a prelim, and then a grand final. Um, so it was a pretty straightforward structure, but it worked, and, and everybody really enjoyed it. And reading, of course, uh, Brunette Leckick's uh, great book in uh, Play On, I believe early on um, uh, some of the structure was slightly different. You were playing on uh, smaller grounds uh, with 15 aside, leaving out rucks and rovers. Yeah, so initially setting up, the rules of the competition um, did involve quite a bit of thought. Um, from my perspective, I thought that a smaller ball than a standard AFL league, or back then, yeah, I think it was AFL, um, was was too big, and our hands were probably closest to the size of a 15-year-old boy. So we went with the, the under-15 size ball. Um, Again, because of our range of skill levels at that point, no one had match experience. It wasn't possible to have had match experience. So so match fitness was um, a consideration and so we thought a smaller oval would help with that. Um, also, the distance of a female kick compared to a male kick um, was obviously going to be shorter, so the shorter length would also uh, facilitate that. Um, we didn't want girls hurting themselves, uh, so we didn't um, allow soccering except for in the goal square. So, so you had to bend over and pick up the ball, which was also for skill development, just like with the juniors. So, so a lot of our rules were were taken from junior rules, and it was purely for developmental purposes. Looking at that competition, as we alluded to earlier, four teams, uh, Melville, Inaloo, Carlisle and Mount Lawley. Um, I'm testing your memory a bit, but going back to those first couple of seasons, the early days, who were some of the standout players for you? Oh, boy, that is testing. Um, Kelly Lukey was was playing for Carlisle um, and she had an amazing kick, long kick and very accurate kick and she was their full forward. She kicked a lot of goals. Um, gee, there were so many. Jenny Ben Pesciuto, um was a tough little rover for Mount Lawley. She was um, was very good at crumbing the ball, and um, so so she was you know responsible for a lot of goals. She also was a good goal kicker herself. Kicked it quite a, snapped quite a few goals. Um, you know, there, there's lots. Sharon uh, Woods uh, played for Carlisle also. She was an awesome rover. Um, very, a very nice style of kick. She, she probably, I'd liken her kick to Barry Cable. Nice low trajectory. Um, there were just so many girls with, with just naturally good skills and it was, was awesome to see that when they'd obviously never had the chance to develop those over the years like boys do with you know coming up through the ranks 
these girls came in as adults or young adults and uh, they just naturally had those skills and all they had to do was learn how to put them together in a in a football match. You know, it, was, it was great. And you mentioned uh, then with Sharon Woods, also known as Saga, she had her sister uh, Janice play at Carlisle and uh, Bridget Narria played at Mount Lawley. And I mentioned those names because they were Indigenous footballers. And you had a number of quality Indigenous women playing in your early years in the WAWFL. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, you know, Sharon and Janice were great players. They played well together. You know, they, they could read each other's play really well. So so that was a, a big advantage for Carlisle in the early years. Um, I had the privilege of playing with both of them for Belmont uh, later on and uh, it, was, it was just so nice to be on the receiving end of, of one of their passes and uh, just to be, you know, on the ground with their football heads uh, they just they just knew how to read the footy and uh, yeah it was was really nice to play with them. As we take that step back to eighty seven eighty eight, as we mentioned, you weren't only just a founder; you were the first president of the WAWFL, and you held that position for four years. How daunting is that for a twenty two year old? I mean, for many twenty two year olds now, we look at it; they're just coming out of university, and if they haven't gone off to Europe and backpacking, they're just uh, beginning their first full time job in the career that they want. How daunting is it for you, twenty two years old, and everyone's looking to you for leadership for a brand new sporting competition? Oh, there were there were times when it was pretty stressful when uh, you know people were were fairly keen back then to to move on and and have interstate matches whereas you know my philosophy was that we needed to to establish ourselves uh for a bit longer first and and really develop our skills and make sure that we could compete against the victorians who who were the ones that you know people wanted to play back then um and i was more about you know slow and steady and, and let's make sure our home competition is strong first before we go and explore uh, the rest of the country with with interstate matches. I've I've always been more about grassroots than than you know the interstate level of football. Um, so I had had some opposition to deal with back then. Um, that was tough, but I was pretty determined. You know, I knew what I wanted to do, what I thought I needed to do to make the competition last, and um, so I kind of just had to stick to my guns and and cop it every now and then. <laughs> Fast forwarding to today, um, we've now gone past 30 seasons of the WAWFL. How do you feel like last year when they were celebrating 30 seasons and there's clubs reporting that there's more than 100 females at training and they're struggling to get everyone a game? And like we do now this year with the uh, West Australia Amateur League's going to start up its own women's competition simply to be able to, I guess, handle the overflow of all these females wanting to play football. Yeah, I mean, I think it's awesome. And, you know, for me, it's about the ordinary girl who just wants to play footy getting an opportunity to do it at whatever level she's at. And I always felt that there was the uh, possibility to have women playing footy at every level. Um, and, And I'm so glad that there is an AFL um, competition for women uh, because of the profile that it brings to the game and it gives the ordinary girls who aren't ever going to get to play um, AFL level it still is allowing them to come and play footy now and 
they're, they're getting to see how good they can be by watching their AFL women's competitions. They can see those, how good the skills can be and, and how exciting it can be that they can go and do it at their own level and, and have their own fun. So, so I, I think it's awesome that it's, it's that popular now and I just hope that it continues to get the support that it needs. Um, you know, in terms of the physio and everything that, that you get with the men's competitions that that will keep the, the women around. And Joanne, just one last one before we let you go. We know in 2020 we will have two AFLW sides in WA. Of course, now we've got the Fremantle Dockers. They will be joined by the West Coast Eagles. Where does your heart lie, with the Dockers or the Eagles? No, I'm a Dockers girl. I was a Dockers girl um, before we had a, a Dockers women's team. Um, I'm a Dockers men's supporter, so I have to say the Dockers. <laughs> well, Joanne, thank you very much for joining us here at Girls Play Footy, and congratulations on everything that you've started with the WAWFL and the success that it is today. Thanks very much. You're listening to the 100th episode of Girls Play Footy on RSN Carnival Digital Radio in Melbourne and on the RSN Racing and Sport app, also available as a podcast via SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. I'm Peter Holden. Our next guest we caught up with at the start of the year, originally to chat about the pathways to the national competition that were laid out a good dozen or so years beforehand, but she also played another very important part in women's footy, helping form the Sydney Women's Australian Football League. It's great to have once again on the line the founding secretary of the SWAFL, Yvette Andrews. Yvette, great to have you on the line as we look back at the history of women's football throughout the various state leagues. We're now looking at the Sydney Women's AFL. And if I recall, there's a certain story that essentially you just bumped into women in a park and asked, hey, did you want to play? Well, to a certain degree, yes, that's how one of the teams formed. And um, it was pretty nice to find a women's football team um, just kicking the ball around on a Sunday. But um, there were quite a other, few other things that went into it as well. And, um, and, you know, a lot of people put in a lot of time to get it off the ground. So let's go all the way back to 1999. How did the first discussions come about, about not only just forming this competition, but to obviously uh, select president, secretary, et cetera, to structure a fixture, and obviously more importantly, particularly in a place like Sydney, try and actually find some grounds you can play football on? Yeah, that's right. Well, that is a, a battle trying to get um, space um, in the busy Sydney weekends. Um, but we... It actually started in 1999. There was a kick at the end of the year down at Pick and Oval in um, Croydon Park, a sort of inner city suburb of Sydney, and Adelaide AFL Club that's got a long established history. Uh, and there was about 10 people turned up to that. So that was the first time something had happened. And then the next year we got serious about um, organising um, an association and then finding some teams. And the Sydney Women's AFL, which became known as the Swaffle, um, incorporated on International Women's Day, uh, March the 8th, in 1999, which is a nice um, day to do it. And we really went from there. And that first year, we had a couple of games, East versus West type games, um, one out in Campbelltown, one in the eastern suburbs. So it, we were trying to capture all of Sydney uh, to test out the idea. And it was great. And we had, um, you know, former. Um, rugby league and rugby union internationals. Um, we had elite soccer players. We had hockey gold medalists. And we just had a whole lot of women who were desperate 
and have been waiting a long time to have a kick of a footy uh, in a in a competitive environment. And um, and then it really took off from there. We didn't know if it was going to succeed, but it certainly did. And we were quite sensible in that first season in sort of aiming for a kind of a nine-a-side competition. It ended up being 12-a-side, um, and we ended up with five teams. Um, as you say, one team I found on Glee Bible having a kick one Sunday and asked them, you know, do you want to join a league? And they said yes. And, you know, we had some other interesting connections. There was a group that all knew each other through the Olympics, um, the Sydney Olympics, and, uh, and you know, other groups that coalesced around various clubs. Just for a moment that you were mentioning about 1999, if I'm correct as well, a team from Sydney actually took on a team from the ACT and won a year prior to the formation of the SWAFL. Oh, wow. We did play the um, ACT. And you know what? I can't remember the result. Isn't that terrible? I can remember the result of the um, of the first grand final um, that we had down at Wagner Oval in 2000, which went into, believe it or not, double extra time. And we stood around on the field um, after the first sort of extra time trying to work out how the hell to end this game. Um, everyone was pretty tired by that point, but, but, you know, my team was victorious. So I certainly remember that one. But you're absolutely right. We had a really positive relationship with the ACT team and we had a few secret weapons. The um the rugby union and rugby league girls kinda of shook shook up the um <laughs> opposition pretty well. So, you know, we did all right. And did the uh, original six teams, North's only uh, lasted for a couple of games before they folded due to a lack of numbers. But three out of those original teams still exist today. Uh, Sydney University Bombers, uh, the Eastern Suburbs Stingrays and the Western Wolves. I know. It's great, isn't it? I love that part of, um, our, of our heritage. And when the Glebe Cyclones, which were the women who were just, you know, randomly formed um, themselves, um, they turned into the uh, into Balmain and, and they folded a couple of years ago and it was really upsetting and, and I kind of raised it with the AFL. I said, this is something we need to protect. We need to protect our history um, and, and bring it in, bring them along the journey, not lose these clubs. But, you know, every year East and West play, we, we figure we're the first teams coming out of that, um, that 1999 um, games and, you know, we play it for the Compass Cup and we're going to keep that going for, you know, another... 50, 100 years, whatever it takes to, to keep that um, rivalry up. Do you recall the first time uh, New South Wales sent a team to play in the National Carnival? I completely do. It was so much fun. I mean, in 1999, five of us went and played with um, with the ACT, and it was funny. They, they said, oh, yeah, these girls are turning up. We didn't know what they were going to be like, and we were just so relieved that you could kick the footy. <laughs> so... So we sort of passed their kick test early on and we had a great time over in, in Western Australia. And then in 2000, we sent a team down to um, to the ACT and it was at, at Ainsley Oval there. And um, it, it was just so much fun because you're connecting to people all over the country that share your passion for AFL. We learned so much. Like playing the Big D, seriously, we would get smashed. I think, you know, we were, we were one year we were the only team that scored against them and the result was something like 164 to 2. We were pretty excited about that. You learnt so much and you were so challenged um, by, you know, this um, level of experience and physicality and knowledge of the game. And we all came much back much better players and we also came back with a lot of good stories. 
And what was that thinking? Um, you know, it wasn't just your state. A lot of other states were getting smashed by the Big V. The Big V had the natural advantage of being essentially the, the home ground of football. What do you take mm. away from those beatings about, okay, what do we need to do at SWAFL to get closer and closer and closer to the Vicks? Yeah, well, I mean, you want your football to improve. So you you kind of getting beaten by the Vicks is as much part of that as working out a way to do better against them. And we, we actually made it into the into the grand final against them, I think in 2002. We made it... We, we were the second team in the country a couple of times in those early years, which is pretty pretty amazing. Um, but you're absolutely right. They just have the depth and the footy knowledge and the, the obsessive passion. Like, they were full on. Um, and they weren't, you know, they would were, they were beat you as hard as they possibly could. So, you know, it came down to one-on-one matchups and, and little victories. You know, if you didn't let that um, pull forward... Uh, kick a goal in that quarter it was great. If you put in a big hit, if you beat someone to the footy, you know, if you got a contested mark, all of those things were sort of um, celebrated by the teams who were playing against them. Um, if you just made it hard for them and you hurt them a little bit, that was also pretty good fun. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was an evolution across the board in terms of, um, you know, coach, more experience in coaching, um, you know, more physical and fitter players, um, you know, developing younger players coming through. And that's why, you know, in the last 15 to 18 years, you've seen teams like GWS really fielding um, a a team that is around half um, local players. So um, we we learnt a lot from players from other states. We've always had Victorians and Western Australians and South Australians, you know, expats coming to Sydney and looking for that local football team and they brought an enormous amount of knowledge and footy footy um, skills that we all learnt from as well. Going back to those early 2000s, as much as we had the Olympics and all the focus on Sydney, it was still hard for women's sport in general to attract any kind of sponsorship or, or, or fundraising oh. dollars. Uh, I, I highlight some examples as well, obviously from another sport, the Matildas, it, that famous calendar, which they all had to strip off the try and, oh. uh, and raise money. The WA team for one of the national carnivals where they were sponsored by yeah. a brothel on the back of the jumpers to get money. How, particularly for you, not being in a traditional Aussie rule state, how much harder again was it to get any kind of money to pay for jumpers, insurance, etc.? Well, I mean, we got second-hand jumpers. <laughs> <laughs> we um we made our own goalposts. We were pretty resourceful. Um, we talked people into you know waiving ground high fees and um and we I think we got five thousand dollars sponsorship eventually in around two thousand and three um, nationally and at a at a local level. In fact, it might have even been a loan, so it wasn't too much at all. Um, but we were good at fundraising. We used to do these events at um. New South Wales Parliament House, which I actually happened to work there, so I had a bit of an in. And we did fundraisers there. We did a cocktail party with Tony Lockett in 2001. It was one of the rare public things he did, and he loved it. He was brilliant. Um, we used to have a, a, a kind of announcement of the team fundraiser every year for the state championships. We had this great film we showed that we used to sort of – and we had something we called the Trivia Night and Swaffle Vision where people sang terrible songs. And we we raised money out of it um, as well. So we were pretty creative in how we we supported ourselves. But it it was a it was a battle, and it was largely 
um, self-funded, which particularly women's team sport has been up to really quite recently. Over that first decade of competition for the SWAFL, what were the numbers like when it came to players? Because even in Victoria, you had constant uh, changing of teams in and out of the competition. Almost the clubs were surviving on a case of wherever friends would go, the players would follow. Yeah, look, we had a pretty stable set of teams in the early years. And as you pointed out, um, they've continued. And in actual fact, um, um, return to the fold. So, you know, North might have folded and Quarry Uni might have folded and Campbelltown might have folded, but they, those teams are coming back now as well. So we had fairly strong team identities and, and organisers in those teams. So we did pretty well. We did have a battle getting resources, well, getting fields, basically. And I think that's a really important point for understanding the difference between Sydney and elsewhere. Look, there is a, there is code warfare in Sydney um, between soccer, rugby league, rugby union, and, and in fact, why particularly Gill's decision to call the um, AFLW on early um, was very important to us because the um, NRL is now trying to get their own women's um, competition up, which is interestingly named after Tasha Gale, who actually played um, AFL for those early years um, and played for the state team. So there's a little kind of link between the two there. But we we had to battle to get on the park. Um, we had councils tell us, oh, yeah, look, that's fine. Um, we love you to play sport, but there's no football fields left. You want to play netball. So we were we had people saying, oh, no, excuse me, this is our cricket ground, get off. And we'd have to go up to them and say, no, <laughs> We're playing football and, and we're going to keep playing football and, and get out of our way kind of thing. So we had to be pretty tough and pretty forthright in terms of just claiming our space. And that was probably one of the biggest challenges. Finding the players, um, having people who would commit and put in the time wasn't as hard because people really wanted it. And it was a very unified culture, which meant that people didn't, you know, you know people didn't leave. <laughs> they stuck around. And how did it come to finding, uh, in particular, volunteers to help run these clubs and also umpires as well to be able to officiate these games? Oh, we had some terrific umpires in the early days. I mean, everyone gives umpires a rough time, but there were a few guys who realised what we were trying to do and put their hands up to help. Um, and we managed those in the early years. That was something that the AFL was able to help us with um, quite early on in the piece. Uh, but those guys, and a lot of them were juniors umpires um, and, you know, they saw it as something really important to the game. Peter Hatley, who was a, a, a mad Swans fan and an umpire, he's the guy you see behind the goalpost waving those flags at Swans games. He was a, a real, you know, he was one of the heart, real heart, part of the heart and soul of Swaffle. And, and those guys, you know, along the way you'd, you'd bump into people who recognised the value and they would be there to support you, you know, and, and be part of making history. For yourself personally, you were part of that 2000 Western Wolves Premiership team and then you suffered the heartache, unfortunately, of five losses in a row in the grand final. Gosh, you've done your homework, haven't you? <laughs> One against Sydney Uni, four against the Newtown Breakaways before finally on the fifth go against the Newtown Breakaways in 2006, you managed to turn the tables. That's right, and I was the coach. So I, co I played in the first year and I coached in the the last, um, the, that final successful premiership in 2006. 
And those two years, we never lost a game. So it's the only year I coached. So apart from I've now coached under five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. But it's the only year I coached senior football. So you better watch out. Um, and I was pretty damn determined at that point. <laughs> we were kind of in. But it was a terrible day. Like, it just bucketed down 10 minutes before the game started. We thought about calling it off, but everyone had booked the, their holidays. And, you know, we had army girls playing and they weren't able to play the next weekend. And, you know, police that were scheduled. You know, that thing that happens with um, with amateur sport where people have lives. Um, and, and so we decided to play and... Um, there were some concerns about the safety because there was so much water on the oval, people could have drowned. It was, you know, it was snorkeling football. Um, and we, we, there was a goal kicker um, for Newtown who tended to kick very, hung around in the box and tended to kick very sort of irritating, dribbly goals through. She was very effective. So for weeks before we practiced rushing behind, which paid off in this terrible weather. And it, and we, that's what we do all day. <laughs> and the Newtown... Um, the Newtown team got very frustrated and kept saying, you've scored points, more points for us than we have. And we're like, yeah, so what? Who cares? We're winning. And that was our plan all along. So it was it was a brilliant victory. Um, but everybody, including the mascot, did mudslides. And um, and eventually Newtown found the um, Premiership Cup, which was hiding in their boot. I think they thought that they were going to keep it forever, but we managed to, we managed to wrangle it off them. And just to show how effective the rushing of the behinds were, the, the final score from that 2006 grand final was Western Wolves 5-4-34, Newtown Breakaways 1-15-21. <laughs> I know, it's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> and, um, and Mickey, our defender, she's a legend, Mickey Ekman, she's played over 300 games and she's a legend and she's still playing today. She played in that first season and she's still playing today. Um, she is one of the nicest and most irritating sledges in the history of the game. And so it was just driving them absolutely berserk. But, you know, that's that's pretty. You work out a way to win, don't you? Indeed you do. Indeed you do. Um, also in those first few years as well, now if I, I'll see if I can get the name correct. I think there was, uh, was it Bras, Balls and Brawls, something like that? There was a documentary oh. <laughs> done on the SWAFL? Well, yeah. We did it, but it was a very good film um, and totally unbiased. It was called Ball Bars and Bruises, and um, I think that pretty well sums up our um, our league at the time. The, one of the other working titles was We Don't Just Do Canteen, so you know you can you can get the vibe from it. We, it was about you know how tough it is to play footy, and um, it was great. It's a great historic um, account of how how we got to where we were, the passion that people felt about it. Well, you know, we made sure we captured all the team songs and, and you know, that, that lives on. And we, we sh- I showed it, and actually I've got footage of the first grand final as well, and no one has ever seen it. And we showed it at a, um, at a, um, a celebration last, um, last year about the history, and the younger players were standing there looking at it in amazement. <laughs> you, know, you know, it was pretty rough and ready style of footy, but they loved it. And I think that's that whole thing is, you know, it's, it's really valuable to be part of a a long story and a fantastic colourful history and that's what we want to see to, you know, continue as part of the AFLW and, and the local leagues today. I've seen a little bit of that vision and just to show because it was 12 aside football back then in, in 2000, if I'm correct, you were actually playing with, with the PVC goalposts wing to wing. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it ended up being too small a field. Um, but um, and the goalposts weren't always straight, um, so there was a few you know issues there. But it didn't it didn't actually matter. I mean, that's the beauty of AFL. You can play AFL. The essence of the game can be captured in any format, and um, and we were surprised about the success. I mean, part of the kind of um, wing to, wing to wing structure was that we could fit two games on some of these larger ovals, and we really um, didn't have access to ovals, so that helped us manage the weekends. Um, it also meant that we were all together playing two games at once. Um, it just took pressure off the off off the association to put on the league, but. The next year we, we moved to full field because it just, you know, we're too big for it that quickly. But it didn't take away from the skill and the passion and the and the physicality and um, it was still one of the greatest days of my life. So it was great. Happy. And a lot of this information, I should say, is coming from a, a great little piece of history that was put together, a document called We Did It Ourselves, edited by Lancelot Yu, um, which celebrated the first decade of the SWAFL. And he, he puts a note in there for the title of this history booklet that it was taken from a theme of Lucy Bergman and yourself uh, with the top 10 reasons why I love SWAFL speech, which you did on the 12th of September, 2009. <laughs> This is very funny. Can you remind me about things? I've um, I've forgotten it. It may well have been because I wrote that speech on the back of raffle tickets after having a few drinks. So but that was um, that was at a um, at a, a, a presentation night. We used to have our own presentation nights, which oh, you know this is that challenge. Like when you end up being getting the presentation night combined with the the men's presentation night, you don't get to do those speeches, you know what I mean? Because there just isn't enough time in the program. And I think working out how to celebrate the distinctive women's culture and coming together is a real challenge for us at the moment. But um, it was great. And and, apparent, and at that point, there was, a, there was a, this is a bit of a brag, there was a trophy which they announced was going to be named after me. I was pretty excited about that. It was for the best and fairest player, which, uh, not best and fairest, it was for the player's player. player. Yeah. It was a players play, which incidentally I never would have got ever got a vote for because I was pretty awful out in the field and no opposition players would have ever ever voted for me. But um it was it was a great night and those those celebrations were, you know, really coming together of the 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 league and, and that whole community and something very special. Uh, you put yourself down a bit there, but weren't you named in the team of the decade for the SWAFL? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's tough. Sometimes I look at what's happening now and I really wish I was 25 years younger. I mean, just would have been really amazing to know what you could have achieved given the, the opportunities and the, you know, the professional um, guidance and the, and, the, and the pressure. I mean, we were having fun um, and that was great. But to really watching the women today really push themselves hard um, as athletes is, you know, you just sometimes I wish I could have been there doing that. But we, you know, I tried my best and I had a lot of fun out there. Um, and I'm really proud to have been named in some of those, um, given some of those honours. In your humble opinion, when, when you were out there playing in the early 2000s, who were some of the better players of the competition? Uh, well, the, so rugby league had had a bit of a competition and they'd had a, a, a national team. I don't, no, they played many games, 
Um, and we had a couple of players come across from there, and they were very hard. Um, so Tasha Gale and Nikki Richards, they were strong, physical, aggressive women. They had a terrible kick, but they caused havoc in the middle, um, and they were great fun to play against. Um, we had some very skilled players coming across from um, other states. So one of my favourite players was Vicky Keyes, who's a West Australian. We had Nikki Harwood play for a while, who, of course, is now um, an AFLW coach um, with Collingwood. Um, so we had some very clever 40 players, and I think we all learned a lot from them. Um, gee, you know, it's, it's going back a long way. But then we had players like Mel Highland, who, when Mel started playing, she was this sweet little <laughs> sweet person <laughs> who was really into music. I think she played the violin or flute and, you know, you wouldn't have imagined her on a footy player. But after 300, 400 games both in Sydney and the Riverina, she became one of the smartest and sort of toughest um, on ballers as well. So we, we had this kind of crazy collection of, of different skills. Um, Kim Harper was another great player who, again, couldn't kick the footy, but but has been um, a, a hockey goalkeeper, gone to the Olympics, and so she was she was competitive and tough and fearless. Um, so, you know, we probably got we probably got a lot of criticism for our um, our kicking skills, but we certainly had been competitive, um, you know, tackling, marking, um, you know competitive sport thinking, so maybe not football, but certainly basketballers made really good footy players because they had that kind of view of how the game worked. So, yeah, that, that's some suggestions. I, there's probably a whole heap more. It's hard to hard to remember them all, but there were certainly some good players in the early days. Um, in recent years, we've seen um, uh, the VWFL hand control of women's football across to AFL Victoria and its league eventually closed and replaced by VFL Women's uh, in SA. Uh, the SAWFL was absorbed by the Adelaide Football League, the amateur competition, and that goes under that's branding now. Um, you had that decision in 2011-2012. Uh, mm. What was the mood like and, and how hard was it to say, okay, we are giving up our name, SWAFL, and we are now going under the banner of AFL Sydney? Yeah, look, I think... Those transitions are always difficult. I wasn't involved in the negotiations transition at that point. I was more just involved with local club footy. Um, I, look, for me, I think it's a it's a difficult but necessary decision. And I think there are other ways of keeping that history alive. Like the AFL itself has changed its name, so names aren't everything, but the but the history and the connections are. Um, and I know. And, but it has to be done very carefully. And I, I do feel a bit of sympathy for the women down in um, Victoria who I know are struggling with where their team sits, you know, and, that, and those kind of local club histories because that's where you invest a hell of a lot of time and it is volunteer hours and passion and it's, it's tribal. So you are really thinking about that club as your, as your home, like it, it it's very um, emotional, and in fact, a couple of years ago, it looked like the wolves were going to to fold, and and I and that's what prompted me to get a lot of my old um, archival footage and photos out and start to post it because I couldn't bear the thought of them not existing anymore. And I kind of sat in front of my computer and sobbed about it for a week. <laughs> Luckily, it didn't happen. Um, posting these great memories, but um, yeah, 
it's it's a constant process to own your own history and to remind the ASL that that it is there and that those identities are part of the game and that they're powerful and they should continue in the modern era. Um, and it's a fight that you have to own and you have to stick at it. And you know, I've I've been pretty upfront with the New South Wales ASL about it. I've um, met with them a couple of times and we've we've worked on um, on celebrating that and, and keeping not losing. Um, the amazing value that, that that those women have given and should continue to give, and um, you know, having women in roles as in in the AFL, I mean, it's great to see um, Tanya Horsch and and Nicole Livingston now playing those public roles. We need more women working as administrators. We need more women in clubs, um, and that's what keeps that um, connection going. It's a tough one. And a bit, one last one before we let you go. We saw in October um, last year there was the Masters Carnival where New South Wales sent a side <laughs> down to Victoria to take part. <laughs> if, they follow, if they follow on from the men, if we do have uh, in each state sooner rather than later a Masters Rules competition get up and going, are you tempted to pull the boots on one more time? <laughs> oh, my God. oh, yeah. Look, we've actually got... Um, it looks like we'll have a, a sort of a second division, so three divisions um, this year in the local comp. And I, I just know I'm going to I'm going to get pressured into it. And I have to I have to get a bit fitter. I have to be honest. Um, and I have to be honest. I think I'll be one of those really horribly dirty old players because I won't have anything else left in my arsenal. <laughs> um, but but it's always on the cards. Um, it's pretty hard not to, isn't it? Well, Lisa Caddo made a comeback uh, late for the Division <laughs> 3 side for the St Kilda Sharks. Belinda Bowie, I think, still going after all these years. So if they can, surely you can. <laughs> They're crazy. I don't know. We'll wait and see. We did have some older players in the in the early years. And there was when Tony Lockett did um, this incredible um, fundraiser for us, they, they all asked him questions. And one person put their hand up and said, um... I've just taken up my uh, football career. I'm, I'm 43. Have you got any advice? And Tony Lockett just looked at her and went, why? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's so, brilliant. Um, on that note, Yvette, thank you very much for your time and going through a bit of the history of the SWAFL here on our 100th episode. And uh, we wish you all the very best in uh, celebrating women's football, particularly at Clubland with the Western Wolves. And maybe, just maybe, that one day when you've got your boots back on running around again. That's right. And, and go the Giants. You're listening to Girls Play Footy. I'm Peter Holden. Thanks for joining us on our 100th episode. Let's take a quick look now at the Lisa Caddo Media MVP. Last year it was won by Erin Phillips. We've gone four rounds so far into the AFLW system. And a quick recap, we do a 5-4-3-2-1 voting system across each game. The round four leaderboard looks like this for the top half dozen. Ali Blackburn is sitting on eight votes. Uh, Fremantle's Cara Denallen is tied with Brianna Davey from Carlton on nine votes. Jessica Wuchner for the Brisbane Lions on ten votes. The equal runners-up at the moment, the Brisbane's Kate Luckins and Emma Carney from the Western Bulldogs in 12 votes apiece. And the leading vote-getter after four rounds on 13 votes, Alicia Eva from the GWS Giants. 
Three rounds still to go in voting for the Lisa Caddo Media MVP. Let's turn our attention now to the Sandford Women's Competition. Round four was played over the weekend. A triple treat at Cooper's Stadium as Ali Schiller for the Two Crows podcast joins us now. And uh, Ali, some very interesting results from that uh, triple header at Norwood. Norwood hanging on by 13 points against West Adelaide, 6-4-40 to 4-3-27. Yeah, triple treat down at uh, down at Cooper's um, on Friday night. As you mentioned, Norwood taking off first, getting the score on the board. They got one back on Westies, being uh, their first um, club to draw first blood for the evening. And the Red Legs probably were more efficient with Stannis Asevich back in the side. I just like saying her name because I think it's pretty awesome. And uh, Norwood also were up by 21 points just into the third term, which effectively iced out the game. Um, they kicked about four in a row. I reckon uh, that got them into that position within just three minutes. Um, oh, where was it after? No, that's gone for me. I'll go on to the next part. Need <laughs> it, but um, the gap got closed, and Monique Hollick was again. She come back in and put the result uh, beyond doubt for the Red Legs. Uh, Ten minutes into the fourth and final quarter, and obviously for Norwood. Um, that's going to prove quite handy with the run home because it is very tight on the old ladder with three teams at the top only separated by a percentage and two of them only separated by one percentage. So for Norwood then, um, Norwood leading disposals, uh, Michelle Reed, repeat, because I just love her name, uh, Monique Collick, Lee Cutting, Sally Riley uh, were leading in there. For Westies, Rachel Martin. Martin's a name that you're going to hear a lot of. Uh, playing there for Westies. Sophie Armstead, the Crows player, in the board. Ali Evans, um, as ever, always getting into the action. Batley, Ballard and Biddle uh, rounding it out there. For Norwood, uh, singles across the board there to Holly, Pete, Benson, Hill, Gibson and Zasevich. And Westies, we've got Biddle, Sonneman and Smith. So the Redlegs quite happy to take that out with Westies and Westies uh, just trying to keep in touch now with the top three teams. Well, down goes south, down goes south. Oh. North Adelaide knock off South Adelaide by 13 points, 5-8-38 to 4-1-25. The steam train has been derailed. <laughs> the steam train has been derailed. Um, North Adelaide, I'm calling them the quiet achiever. They're just sneaking along in the background and are really becoming a threat now in the competition. So, admittedly, South were down, and this is not to take anything away from North Adelaide because they were champions being here, but uh, South were down to one player on the bench, players vomiting. And even at one stage, I think during the third quarter, the commentators thought Chrissy was upset there as she threw a stat sheet into the air. But basically, and I can't repeat the words exactly um, on air here, but basically it was just go out and have some fun. Um, There's not much more you can do right now. Just go out and enjoy the game. So she let the girls run it out, and they did their best. Uh, but to Norse credit, they had the additions of Jess Edwards and Britt Perry back into the side. Um, they were too strong and greatly deserved their win. Uh, Nikki Gore for South Adelaide. Um, it'll be one that the AFL punters will be definitely looking at, and she's becoming eligible in about two weeks' time, I believe, for the AFLW draft. She's the Powerade Breakthrough Player nomination for the round. Congratulations to her. Leading disposals for North Perry, uh, Redan, Taylor, that's Tally Redan from the Crows, Edwards, Tynan, Lomberto, Alan Woodland, and Kat Reynolds, who had a great game as well. For South, it was Buchanan, uh, Gore, as in Nikki Gore, the one I was just talking about, Smith, 
And Hachari was back playing um, from the Crows in there, getting a bit of form into her. House and Mark, and again, Manyard, who's already been nominated uh, for the Breakthrough Player Award already. The goals for North, Rosenzweig kicked two, followed by Roberto, Perry and Reynolds. The South, Bennett, McCarthy, Rowe and Hatchard were the ones to get in there. But congratulations, North Adelaide, you little quiet achiever. So Matt Slade and Emma Sampson were pretty damn proud of their team right now. The double blues ain't got the blues no more. Four eight thirty two to Glenelg. Four six thirty. Sturt with their first victory. Yeah, down to a nail biter to last game, and by far not the worst game there. Sturt creeping home by two points to get their first ever win in the SANFL statewide Super Women's League. Um, congratulations, firstly to Sturt getting that happening. They had players, the Adelaide Lightning netballer by the name of Jess Foley. She was in everything and were instrumental. she was instrumental in the win. Also, Bakara Palmer, the Crows rookie, kicked three. Kicked an absolute cracker for the highlight reel. She shaped a turn on her left foot, changed direction sharply and snapped truly on her right boot about 20 metres out. So, Glenelg were actually the only team to kick a goal in the final quarter. Um... Thames and Morris took a chess mark and converted that one, but two points was as close as they could get. So uh, also for the Blues, we had Caitlin Swanson and Shay Gundlach or Gunny um, across halfback and Swanson in the midfield were always brilliant for the Blues and for Glendale Bear, Sammy Allen getting in everything. So leading disposals there for Sturt, we had Jess Foley on 20, Sophie Hall on 17, Swanson followed by Bamford. Uh, Gundlach and Bakara Palmer still getting in the leading disposals and Maple in there as well. For Glenelg, Hartley, Brianna Walling said her name, I think, every single week. Ellie Kellogg getting her name back on the board there. Tams Morris and Kale Pedler are getting in there with 13. Gold Sturt, as I mentioned, Bakara Palmer, three. Congratulations there, Bakara. Getting on board there. And Trenorden, uh, that's Lane Trenorden, getting the goal there as well. For Glenelg, we had Lexi Edwards popping one up there. Um, Alex Fitchridge, Kate Pedler, and Cal Pedler, sorry, and Cam Morris routing them out for Glenelg. So Glenelg are the only team at the moment that are sitting there still searching for their first win. Uh, but for the latter at the moment, as I mentioned before, just percentage, you got South Adelaide on top, all of the following on six points, South, Norwood and North. Um, and Norwood and North are only separated by one percentile point. So getting into the final lot of rounds there, it's absolutely going to be a cracker. And with that loss of South Adelaide, that really opens it up to be anyone's game there, or except for maybe Sturt. I mean, sorry, Glenelg. Heading into that round five, two Friday night games and a curtain raiser on the Saturday to the Crows-Blues match. Yes, that should be damn fine. I'm looking forward to it. Um, can't wait for everything to be happening again. Just want a win on the board, to be honest, Peter. Otherwise, I'm going to start getting depressed here. <laughs> questions mentioning the women's league. But now, hopefully, flipping them, she'll have a bit more run in the legs. Um, hopefully, it'll be dry. That would be nice. And um, great to see the girls go around again. So, everyone, get down there. It's still free entry. But then also to have a look at the statewide Super Women's League, the future champions for SA football, come down and watch them play. Norwood, South Adelaide at 2.55pm. That's the curtain raiser again on the Friday night at City Master Stadium. West Adelaide hosting Glenelg at 6pm and North Adelaide hosting Sturt at 7.45pm. Ali, thanks very much for joining us here on Girls Play Footy. Where again can people catch that Two Crows podcast? 
Oh, that's easy enough said. That's um, look it up at Two Crows at Two Crows Podcast on Twitter and subscribe and listen to all our rubbish on our podcast, Waxing Lyrical with all things Adelaide Woody, um, on YouTube. So just look up Two Crows Podcast on there. Well, that's just about it for our 100th episode. So time for some facts and thanks, I guess. Um, we began as a podcast back on the 19th of February 2015, and our guests on that first podcast included... Katie Brennan, who would go on to be the future captain of the Western Bulldogs. Michelle Cowan, who would go on to be the future coach of Fremantle. And Katie Lambeski, co-founder of Girls Play Footy, who would talk about her tour of the United States with the then VU St Albans Spurs. And who would think that in two years' time I'd be in the United States calling the USAFL Nationals. Uh, In the past three years, we've conducted almost 350 interviews, including with many of the stars of the AFL Women's Competition even before the 2017 start date for the league was confirmed. So we're well and truly ahead of our time. We interviewed state league legends, up-and-coming youth girls like Chloe Malloy and Izzy Huntington, and highlighted important causes like the Cath Watton Cup, played between the Eastern Devils and Darabin Falcons, and the RUOK Day Cup, played between the St Kilda Sharks and Eastern Devils. We had the privilege of interviewing those who were playing in and growing the women's game overseas, like Satiri Tradrao out of Fiji, Amy Legault in Canada, Trey Casillas in the USA, as well as Lisa Wilson, not only developing the game in England, but now developing the game in Germany. We were also granted the honour of a half-hour interview with the former Vice President of the Western Bulldogs, Susan Alberti. Susan's story is simply incredible for everything that she's gone through in her life and still choosing to stay in the public eye and to help out so many causes, words just fail me to describe Susan. We dedicated a whole podcast episode to her. In fact, it was even picked up by and featured on the Western Bulldogs website. I thank Lisa Caddo for arranging that interview and Susan for being so generous with her time. If you want to listen back to it, go back to our 2015 podcast on SoundCloud. Um, It is Season 1, Episode 26. I want to humbly thank every single person that appeared on each of our 100 episodes. A number of them didn't know me from a bar of soap. So for them to get some random email or Facebook message from me, then agree to an interview, well, I'm so very thankful. It hasn't always been easy. Some people feel a bit nervous on the radio, so have said no thanks to an interview. There's the rare one or two who don't like Girls Play Footy and its articles and have therefore said no thanks. I, I do hope we win back those people over time. And in the past year, with the introduction of the AFL Women's Competition, some of those clubs have been fantastic with making their players and coaches available, while others sadly have been either snobbish or haven't even bothered to return our emails. Then the breaks, I guess. I also want to take this moment to thank two other podcasts, This AFL Life and The Outer Sanctum. Back in 2016, our second season, I admit I was getting lazy. I was doing an episode maybe every two or three or four weeks, and they were only 20 or 30 minutes long. I really wasn't putting in the effort. Then when this AFL Life came along, it was getting more downloads than us on SoundCloud. When the Outer Sanctum came along, they got better mainstream media coverage than we could ever hope for. And that fueled the competitive juices. That made me go, I can't be just the longest-running women's footy podcast. We have to be the best and most respected women's footy podcasts. 
and that made me lift my game to make sure that I'm doing an episode each and every week, that it's an hour long, that we have a minimum of three guests, plus in-season having state league reports as well. It helped lift the quality of our podcast. It only happened because this AFL life in the Outer Sanctum came along and indirectly gave us a boot up the backside. So thank you to those two podcasts. I'd also like to thank our state league reporters, Aaron Russell out of Queensland, Lauren Hodson out of New South Wales, Alison Schiller out of South Australia, and Matthew Cox based here in Victoria for donating five to ten minutes of their time each and every week in season to give us the lowdown on what's happening in their state leagues. Plus, as an extension, I want to thank the whole girlsplayfooty.com radio team who have volunteered their time since 2014 to produce live weekly coverage of the then VWFL and now VFLW competition. Dan Hill, who helped start it, and then Matthew Cox, who's been our league caller since then, as well as various special comments people, such as Katie Lembeski, Matt Marsden, Christy Williams, Lucy Watkin, Neve Felton, Andrew Donison, Nick Necropontis, Tanya Hetherington, Olivia Crow, Lisa Caddo, Anna Harrington, Joe Watton even joined us at some stage. To all those who helped out, thank you very much. I'd also like to thank John Thwaites and Adam White for hosting us on RSN 927's digital channel, Carnival. Not only just this show, but also our live weekly VFLW coverage. And a big thank you to Katie Lembeski and Matt Marsden, co-founders of Girls Play Footy. To give you a little bit of background... In 2014, we were known as VWFL Radio, myself and Dan Hill. We did uh, two-thirds of a season. We finished up. There was a bit of tension between us and AFL Victoria. We didn't quite see eye-to-eye on a couple of issues, so we decided to become independent, and we joined the Girls Play Footy team. Matt and Katie embraced us, and as a way of promoting our VWFL coverage then, we decided to start up this podcast, and here we are 100 episodes later. In fact, when we began at Girls Play Footy, they had 1,200 Facebook followers. Now they have 17,000. We can't claim credit for all of them, but we'd like to think that we helped boost up some of those numbers and obviously articles on the website and other things to promote girlsplayfooty.com and its social media channels. Finally, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for listening to this show every Wednesday on RSN Carnival, Digital Radio Melbourne, or downloading it as a podcast via SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. The comments that I get via Facebook, via the Girls Play Footy site or via our Girls Play Footy Twitter account really do mean a lot. And we do it all for nothing. I literally do not get paid to do this. In fact, uh, for a while now, it's been costing me out of my own pocket to store the files on SoundCloud through the premium account. Hopefully those costs will be covered very shortly because we started up a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash girls play footy. And we can use a few of those dollars just to pay for those uh, audio file hosting services. But sincerely, it's been a privilege. Even if I didn't get compensated, if I still kept losing money doing this, it just means a lot to me to be able to promote women's football and for you to pay attention. Again, thank you very much for your company. Thank you for joining us throughout 100 episodes. And until next week, bye for now.